You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left.NYC and Stage Left, the podcast. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, here we are again. Yes, we're back for the second installment of our look at uh, the biggest hits in Broadway history. Yeah, we're in the middle of a three-parter. Yes, this is our first ever three-parter. It feels like new territory. It certainly does. Well, apparently we have a lot to say. Well, there's a lot to be said. Yeah. <laughs> a hit's a hit. Yes. And, you know, Broadway certainly had a, it, it's fair amount to them. Uh, so we're looking at musicals only. And um, last time uh, we took a look at what we called the OGs uh, with uh, Oklahoma and My Fair Lady as the two biggest musical hits of the modern era. Um, and then we transitioned to the swing in sixties. Although I said the swing in seventies last time, was everything swinging back then? Uh, it was, as a matter of fact, as someone who was there, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Although I I wasn't swinging in, you know, at seven. Sure. But you know, a child picks up on things. Well, actually, I was swinging, but on a different kind of swing. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so we looked at uh, three uh, big hit musicals of the 60s with uh, Hello, Dolly, Fiddler on the Roof, and Man of La Mancha. I said this on the last episode, you have gotten me to like Man of La Mancha, which is a pretty, pretty incredible feat on your behalf. Honestly, it's going on my resume. Well, there you go. Skills, you know, special skills. It's quite a resume you have. (laughs) So moving on to the 1970s, I picked two shows for this category, uh, number three, uh, and Jamie, of course, agreed. Um, And these are two shows that I'm dubbing uh, 1970s phenomena, right? Shows that are very much a a product of their time, sort of in response to their time, um, and that had major crossover appeal to the public writ large, um, which, of course, is the case for a lot of these hits. But the first one being Grease. Grease ran 3,388 performances from 1972 to 1980. That's eight years and two months for those keeping score at home. It was Broadway's longest-running show and musical from 1979 to 1983. It remains today the 16th longest-running Broadway show. 
I don't think we need to say too much about what Grease is because everyone knows Grease, not only because of the success of the musical, but the 1978 film with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John and Stockard Channing and the whole crew. You know, it's so much a part of our culture. But first, of course, it was a musical. And just like... Man of La Mancha premiered in a sort of theater outside of the traditional Broadway theater district. So did Grease. Grease started at the Eden Theater, which was sort of an off-Broadway house, but it was, this was a Broadway production at an off-Broadway house. Actually, it goes even further back. It started at the Kingston Mines, which was a well, nightclub in Chicago. Yeah. In Chicago. So it, yeah, it, yeah. it had a, uh, an interesting road to, to Broadway. Yeah, so it was at the Eden Theater in New York, uh, in the East Village, and then moved uptown to the Broadhurst, the Royal, and the Majestic. So talk about moving theaters. Gosh, happened a lot. Composition. Yeah, happened a lot. Uh, it was nominated for seven 1972 Tony Awards. It won none, but yet went on to become the longest-running uh, Broadway show for a time. We've talked about this before. I find it so fascinating, the cultural response in the 1970s with this wave of 1950s nostalgia that you saw, of course, with Grease on Broadway in 1972, but then also American Graffiti, the film in 1973, and Happy Days on TV, and then, you know, that spawned Laverne and Shirley. And, you know, it was just so much a part of the culture of the 1970s, this look back at a simpler time uh, of the 1950s, which, of course, the story isn't that simple. I mean, one strain of thought is that this cultural response was actually a response to the civil rights movement of the 1960s and that, you know, the the newly won freedom and equality and hard-fought civil rights battles of the 1960s caused uh, a particular segment of the population, namely white suburban Americans to want to remember fondly a time before all of that, which was the 1950s. Um, So uh, it's a little bit of a sort of a tricky, potentially nasty and retrograde cultural moment that, that happened in the 1970s. But I think you could also make an argument that the sexual revolution of the seventies had a little bit to Mm -hmm. do with wanting to look back at the sort of sexually repressed late fifties. And, you know, there, there's a, there's a world in which those things live together as well. So it's, it's, you know, the seventies were a complicated time for sure. A lot going on. Yeah. And it, and it's fascinating, you know, Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey who wrote um, the music book and lyrics, you know, they themselves were writing the piece based off their own experiences growing up in, you know, Chicagoland area in the 1950s, right? And and it's very much built from their own experiences. And that first version, Jamie, that you that you mentioned in Chicago, um, you know, apparently was very raunchy. Yeah. And they did they actually weren't setting out to write something nostalgic. They were they set out to write something that was um, sort of subversive, right? That was that was cutting against the way that people were remembering the 1950s by presenting, you know, teenagers who were smoking and and getting pregnant and you know having sex and and all of that, right? I mean, that was that was pretty, you know, choicey material. Well, I love this. Jim Jacobs said that um, there really was a, a girl named Rizzo. She was this tough oh. little Italian <laughs> chick, and he said that he went back to his high school reunion, which was William Howard Taft. outside of Chicago. But when he went back to his high school reunion in 1989, he ran into the girl that he based Rizzo on and he said, how's it going? And she said, oh, you know, I was just visiting my husband on death row earlier today. So, you know, things didn't work out for Rizzo so well. I could flirt with all the guys 
When you look back at the folks who were in this production, right? I oh mean, my God. I don't think anybody considers Greece to be like some great artistic achievement. No offense to anyone involved, but the cast, the, the sheer number of, of really talented people who were, you know, sort of either made their debuts or cut their teeth early in their career in this, in this show uh, is incredible. I mean, first of all, the original cast had Barry Bostwick as Danny um, and Walter Bobby, you know, the, acclaimed actor and director was in the ensemble and then you know replacements later on in the run included mary lou henner peter gallagher judy Kay, patrick swayze john travolta i mean pre-film was in the musical jerry zacks uh rex smith treat williams richard gear i mean it's it's unbelievable how many how many people did you say adrian barbeau no, I didn't. I don't know who that is. Uh, Adrienne Barbeau. Um, oh, she was a very popular actress in the 70s. She played Maud's daughter on Maud. Oh, okay. yeah, um, but I believe yeah. Adrienne Barbeau was the original Rizzo. Wow. But yes, everybody seemed to go through Greece at one point or another. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and that, that of course, continued with the two revivals. So yeah. the revival in 1994 and the revival in 2007, you look back at both of those productions and, you know, you, there's so many musical theater and television and film stars, you know, started with Greece, right? Whether it's Megan Mullally and Billy Porter and, uh, you know, Hunter Foster, you know, who were all in that Greece production in 94 or the, ni- the 2007 revival, which of course, you know, was cast with a reality TV competition uh, called Greece. You're the one that I want, um, you know, basically plucked Max Crum and Laura Osnes from obscurity and put them as the leads in a Broadway show. And, you know, they both have had considerable careers, especially Laura Osnes, um, you know, in the years since. Um, so a- amazingly, you know, Greece has been sort of a breeding ground for really talented, talented performers throughout its history. I think it's one of those stories that everyone can relate to. Everyone went to high school. Everybody did that whole, you know, click thing. Everybody mm-hmm. had, I don't want to say everybody had a pregnancy scare, but like everybody, <laughs> but everybody understands the need to be popular, the need to fit in, what it's like to feel like an outcast. All those themes are very, you know, they're things that everybody is a part of. And the film, and then that film, which captured, which captured all of that so beautifully, but it's also a very different, the film of Greece is a very different thing than the actual musical. So it's, it, 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 lives in a couple of different worlds. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, shows that live in a different, <laughs> in a couple of different worlds, uh, our second uh, show in this category uh, is Annie. I'm home. Which, which Jamie's home. I'm also home. I don't know that I've shared this on, on, on this podcast before, but as a kid, I was 
absolutely obsessed with with Annie. And this is actually before Hello Dolly, before I really, you know, understood musical theater. I saw an eighth my my brother's eighth grade production of 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 Annie. Um, he wasn't in it, but it was the eighth grade at his school, and became obsessed with it. And of course, you know, the nineteen eighty two film, and so much so that when I was a child, my punishment if I did something wrong was to be banned from watching Annie. That's the worst thing. I've ever heard. Well, the, I'm not a fan of the film, but yes. But it's all I had. I was, you know, I was six. Right. Well, and also the thing is, like, if 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 the film is your only intro, is your first right. introduction to it, then I get that. But you know, I I had the original production as my my introduction. Of course. Well, Jamie, tell us about Annie. Well, I will say this. Just speaking about punishments, I had the opposite of that, and I've told you this before, and I know you know this. So. Um, my parents used to use Annie as a babysitter. Um, we spent a lot of time in Los Angeles when I was growing up. We didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't move there until I was in high school. But we spent a lot of time there, and my parents would specifically pick the um, Century Plaza Hotel for us to stay in while Annie was running across the street at the Schubert Theater because they could basically build a weekend around me seeing Annie Friday night, two times on Saturday, and then the Sunday matinee. And they could run off and do whatever they wanted to. And I could just walk from the hotel. There was an underground tunnel that connected to the theater. I could go back and have dinner in the room and whatever. And they didn't have to worry about me at all. So much so to the point where like the ushers knew me and like I I ended up actually becoming friendly with the girl who played Annie, the West the West yeah. Coast Annie, um, Patty Pats, would later become a friend of mine when I was in high school. Um, and and I was obsessed with her in that in in yeah. in that production. But um yeah. but but that's about me. Um Annie <laughs> itself actually had a sort of an interesting um, road to Broadway. It, it started mm. at Goodspeed Opera House. Um, it was in a fair amount of trouble. They ended up having to fire the girl who played Annie, um, and she was replaced by Andrew McCardle very, very, very famously. And this would actually yeah. be a theme that would sort of haunt the show for its entire sort of history. Um, there was a 1997 revival where they um, where they cast an Annie again in a contest. Um, I think her name was Joanna Pasidi, and uh, she ended up um, not being able to do the part or wasn't quite right or whatever, and she ended up being replaced by Brittany Kissinger um, during the previews, and that was quite a scandal, um, upsetting original uh, Annie Andrea McArdle, who had been like a judge in that contest, yeah. and and ended oh up gosh. you know feeling you know sort of uh, uh, not good about that whole. Um, thing. So it's a thing that sort of haunted this show. Yeah. Um, but again, what do they say about working with um, animals and children? You know, it's, right. it's, yeah. it's always and a Annie's fraud. got both. Annie's got both. <laughs> Well, you know, it's based on um, the comic strip, Little Orphan Annie, which uh, was obviously very popular in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and I, in doing my research, was shocked to discover continued uh, well past Harold Gray, the cartoonist's death in the 60s. Um, it, was, it was in circulation until 2010. Yes. Which is amazing. It had a 86-year run as a comic strip, uh, which is pretty amazing. And, you know, 
in its time, it was a big deal, um, not only because of the subject matter, but the fact that Annie was a girl, right? right? And there was a girl anchoring a comic strip, um, which is you know pretty amazing. So Martin Charnin, who uh, was the lyricist and director of Annie, um, it was his idea to take this comic strip and make it into a musical. And he brought it to uh, Thomas Meehan, uh, book writer, who... Um, you know, sort of struggled at first to figure out, well, how do we, how do we tell this story? What is the story? Because it's a serialized, you know, it's a comic strip, right? You get three or four uh, windows and, you know, that's, that's the story, right? So he created his own original story um, using the characters, setting it in New York, um, and sort of casting Annie as this Dickensian orphan hero um, and creating characters along the way, right? So there's no Miss Hannigan or Rooster or Lily in the comic strip. That was all created by Thomas Meehan for the musical. Um, and in fact, I was sort of, you know, sort of burst my Annie bubble to go back, to go back and discover um, that Harold Gray, the cartoonist, um, you know, the show itself is the musical is like an ode to FDR and the New Deal and like, you know, liberalism. And it turns out that the comic strip was not. Right. And in fact, Harold Gray used Little Orphan Annie as uh, a way to criticize FDR and the New Deal. He was a conservative, you know, libertarian. He didn't believe the government should be involved in the economy at all. In fact, at one point, he killed Daddy Warbucks in the comic strip to symbolize FDR killing private em- enterprise. I mean, this guy really had it out for, uh, you know, the Democrats and, and FDR. And so, you know, they sort of eschewed all those politics and mapped on their own politics. And much like Little Orphan Annie was a beacon of hope during the Great Depression in the comic strip, you know, they sort of leaned into that, right? And and what I think, what I've always thought sort of elevates Annie beyond being obviously, you know, a very cheery, entertaining musical is the symbolism of its central titular character and, and, you know, what she means to anyone going through a difficult time, but also to a country going through a difficult time. But I'm stuck with a dime. That's gray and lonely. I just stick out my chin and grin and say, everyone, the public is too, all of them up. Say, the sun will come out tomorrow. It's no mistake that this show came in the in the wake of Watergate, um, in a time when there was a lot of you know cynicism and um, America was going through what Jimmy Carter would later term, although I don't think he ever said the word malaise. Right? Um, you know, it arrived in a moment in the late seventies where um, you know maybe America needed once again to hope and reimagine itself. Now, of course, you know that ended up getting us Ronald Reagan, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's not the fault of Annie the musical. Um, <laughs> okay, good. Cause it sort of sounded like that's where you were going. No, no, no. <laughs> it's morning in America again. Right No, But Annie of course was a gargantuan hit, right? It ran 2,377 performances from 1977 to 1983, five years and eight months. 
started at the Alvin Theater, then moved across the street to what was then called the Anta Playhouse, moved to the Eugene O'Neill, then closed at the Eurus Theater. I mean, again, these, these moves are just wild. I, these shows moved constantly. We were going to keep saying this. I actually have to interrupt you right here because I think you're doing it a bit of disservice. Oh, okay. Because Annie was not just a popular show. It became, I mean, you're, you're, you're alluding to this, but it, it really became part of the popular culture in a way yeah. that that a show hadn't in a really long time. There were tons of Annie TV specials. And Annie's yeah. were everywhere. They were, you know, politicized to a certain extent, which is so, sort of what you've been referencing. They were on every talk show. I mean, there was Annie mania. Every little yeah. girl, those people, girls were wearing those red dresses again. I mean, <laughs> it was it was a huge boon to the comic strip, as you mentioned. It was, yeah. it was still around. I mean, Annie really took over um, in a way that I don't think a musical hadn't quite some time. It's a cultural phenomenon, yeah. just like Greece, right? I mean, that's why you know we put these two together um, because they made that leap. And of course, you know, it was made into the 1982 film, um, which um, you know, obviously, people, um, you know, it was not a success, right? Um, to say, to put it mildly, but it had a great cast: Albert Finney, Carol Burnett, and Ryan King, Tim Curry, Bernadette Peters, uh, Jeffrey Holder. I mean, you know, it was it it, it, it was a moment. It was a moment. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a it's a mistake. It's not well done. However, yeah. it again, and I think this is the power of Annie and of the musical and of the story, it definitely enjoys a cult status. And it definitely totally, yeah. is a huge movie for um, several generations of, of, yes. of youngsters that, that it was formative for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're not yeah. alone. And, yeah. and it's not unique yeah. to your generation. I think the generation after you and a generation before you all felt that same way. So yeah. Um, yeah. W- without question, um, there's something there. Uh, and I think it's this, I think it's Annie. I think it's this, there's something mm-hmm. about this character. And, and again, yeah. everybody loves an underdog. Everybody loves an optimist. You know, these are very powerful things. Yeah, 100%. And that score. I mean, Charles Strauss, uh, I, I, I think it's got to be his best score. I know he wrote Bye Bye Birdie and you know, a host of other uh, shows. Oh, but, I, um, I think it's his best score. I, I don't, Annie I don't is, think there's... Yeah, it, applause. I guess, you know, he did, he did run Yeah, I mean, those are great shows. Uh, but Annie, <laughs> the other thing about Annie is, and, and I find this really interesting too, because I don't, it's had several revivals, if, as you mentioned. Um, yeah. there, there really hasn't been a revival that's quite captured the magic of the original. And I think no. some of that has to do with the time and place and you know, all of that. But no matter what, that score is, it, it's, it, even in the revivals that haven't been successful, the score is a standout. Little girls, little girls, everywhere I turn, I can see them. Little girls, little girls, night and day, I eat, sleep, and breathe them. I'm an ordinary I think, you know, part of the, the reason why the 97 revival and the 2012 revival didn't land the way, you know, that one might 
have anticipated has to do with my point about the politics of it, right? I mean, the show has to meet the moment and, you know, sort of socially, culturally, politically, 97 and, 90, and 2012 were not moments of, you know, American despair, right? You know, no. and, and this show is meant to, to stiffen your spine and, you know, put a little pep in your step and, uh, you know, the Annie character, right? It was just so central to what she means and what she symbolizes. I also think the show is deceptive. I think people mm. think of it as a simple show. Right, right. And, I, and I've seen many productions. There was, a, there was a production recently in London that was very dark. And you walked into the theater and they were blasting FDR speeches. And it was just, yeah. it was heavy handed and it was, everything was yeah. dark. And there was very little joy joy to it and and I and I think that people misunderstand what Annie really is and I think they oversimplify it and they think it's this little you know sweet book musical but to your point it's not it's about a lot of things and and well, that's a mistake that people make yeah on the um, on the re-released uh, cast album when they did that I think probably in the late 90s they included songs that were cut from the show and the original opening of the show was a song called Apples. Right. And if you listen to that song, I think um, Charles Strauss and Martin Charnin sang it on the demo. It's, it opens with, you know, a series of people begging in the street and singing about, you know, their lost fortunes. Um, and the lyrics are, I mean, they fully, I mean, they, they abandoned it because it was a little too heavy handed, right. Um, as an opening number. Um, but you know, to your point, that is the milieu that the show lives in. It's a desperate time. It's the great depression. And I've always, I've always loved that song, despite the fact that I completely understand why it has no place opening a Broadway musical. I was the brightest broker at Merrill Lynch. I'd make or drop a bundle and never flinch. New Benjamin Cardoza, I called him Ben. Apples, apples, two for ten. We all had butlers, we all had cooks. I have one other story before we leave Annie, because I just love this. So there's a pretty good uh, documentary about um, sort of life. I think it's called Life After Tomorrow about, you know, mm -hmm. what it was like to be an orphan. And I think it's pretty well documented um, just generally that the orphans were rambunctious in all the companies all over and, and yeah. they were constantly getting into trouble. Sarah Jessica Parker <laughs> has talked about there being a brothel on 52nd Street and, you know, the orphans would roller skate by and throw water balloons at the prostitutes sitting on the stoop, you know, lots of stuff. Um, and there was lots of, you know, there were lots of moms and there was lots of mom drama oh, yeah. and all that stuff. But I love this story that apparently on Broadway, um, when the orphans would get into trouble, particularly backstage during a performance, there was this thing where the stage manager would pull them from doing the curtain call, right? So if you got into trouble, your punishment was that you couldn't do the curtain call. Well, one of the orphans, Julie Stevens, it happened to her and she she says she had done nothing wrong, that she, there was no reason for her to be in trouble. But more importantly, yeah. she said to her mom afterwards, that doesn't seem right. Now we're talking about a you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old girl saying to her mom, that doesn't seem right. I'm going to call actors equity. And she did. And she, and she exposed this. And so after yeah. that, orphans were never pulled from the curtain call, which I love that story. Here's this like 13 or whatever year old girl saying, you know, yeah. I've worked hard to do the show tonight. I deserve yeah. my moment.
let's move on to our fourth category, which is the first category that's only one show because it, it deserves its own category because there was nothing like it before and there really hasn't been anything like it since. And that is 1975's A Chorus Line. You know, I still can't believe we haven't done an entire show devoted to A Chorus Line. Or a whole season or a whole podcast. Well, I mean, that, you know, I, I don't think there is one. Well, A Chorus Line, I mean, what can we say, right? This was the show that literally saved Broadway. Yes. Right? I mean, without being hyperbolic there, because it's not hyperbole to say that were it not for A Chorus Line, Broadway would look completely different today. Well, talk about the fabulous invalid. Yes, of course. I mean, in 1975, um, theaters were empty. The Times Square district was you know, a dangerous place. Uh, There was no tourist traffic. People were lamenting left and right that Broadway's dead. Um, You know, there there are no new great musicals anymore. Um, You know, it was a tough, tough time. And out of that, you know, difficult period came Michael Bennett and the genius inception of this show, which you know, it's easy to sort of not appreciate through today's lens, but was so groundbreaking in the way that it told a story, right? Um, And obviously that grew out of, again, its very inception. So, you know, uh, these dancers had had gotten together to to talk about their lives um, and, you know, commiserate and uh, sort of what, what some people have likened to be a therapy session. I think it was Priscilla Lopez who used that word. It was like a therapy session. Well, even Donna um, McKechnie has said because she had yeah. had so much analysis prior to that night, she felt very comfortable sharing her, you know, sharing truths and telling her story. I think they all did. That first session on January 26, 1974, you know, is stuff of legends. Michael Bennett was there. He turned on a tape recorder and just they went around the circle and and all these dancers shared their lives. And um, again, what Priscilla said to us was the entirety of a chorus line was in that one night, right? right? The way he went down, it wasn't a line, it was a circle, but the way he went around and asked everyone to say, you know, their real name, their stage name, where they were born and how old they are, right? I mean, that's literally what happened and all the jokes and all the personalities and all the stories were birthed in that first session. And then over the next year, Michael Bennett worked with uh, book writers James Kirkwood and Nicholas Dante, uh, and then, of course, Marvin Hamlish and and Ed Kleban um, on the score to create what would become a chorus line. Um, And the very process itself was groundbreaking. There had never been a show that was uh, workshopped like this, um, which uh, Joe Papp housed at the Public Theater, um, thanks to the introduction made by uh, Bernard Gersten, who had known uh, Michael Bennett through his other work on Broadway and admired his work. And he put them together, and Joe Papp became sort of the grandfather of, of this show. And it premiered at the Newman Theater, where there's a little plaque there today commemorating it. It's hard to imagine a chorus line in the Newman Theater. You know, it's it's so small and it's so intimate and that it just, oh, every time I go in the Newman, I think of this, like, how did it fit on that stage? Obviously it did. And we have both heard from multiple people that there was never an evening in the theater quite like a chorus line 
at the Newman. You know, it was very special. It was an instant sensation. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the reason why the in the finale they enter from stage right is right. because there's no stage <laughs> yeah. left wing right. at the Newman Theater. Right. Or there wasn't at the time. I think they've reworked it a little now. But at the time, you literally couldn't enter from that side of the right. stage. So that's why that costume change happens from uh, stage right. Uh, but, you know, a chorus line is just, it's a chorus line, right? I mean, it 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 went on to become the longest running show in Broadway history, not just by a couple years, but like, almost doubling the right. record that had been set by Greece. Um, 6,137 performances from 1975 to 1990, 14 years and nine months. Um, unheard of. Just like Oklahoma running five years was completely unheard of. No one had ever seen that. A chorus line blew that away. Well, and I think, again, uh, it's what you were saying earlier about the the evening of everyone sharing their stories and how mm-hmm. The, the entire show is based in truth, right? Every right. single right. thing that happens on that stage happened mostly to the people that were on that stage, right? Some stories <laughs> got assigned to different people and right. got cut up a little bit here and there. But for the most part, everybody on that stage is telling a version of their own story or of somebody else's story that's on that same stage with them. So there's so many layers of, of history just right in that moment. Plus, with Michael Bennett stripping away every mm. facade and artifice that you would normally have in a th- musical comedy and putting the orchestra out of sight so you couldn't see them. Every single thing he did was based in truth. And mm. that was really remarkable. And I think that that is, it just resonates and is so powerful. And no matter what production you see and what level that always is there. And it's, and it, and it's, and it's, and it's, it grabs anybody that sees that show. Whether he did this purposefully or not, or whether I'm just constructing this thought because we just talked about Fiddler on the Roof, but just like you could look at Fiddler on the Roof and say, oh, it's a parochial story about a bunch of Jews living in a village, you could look at a chorus line and say, oh, it's a show about a bunch of dancers you know, sharing their stories, whatever. But just like was the case with Fiddler, where everybody finds themselves in you know, the, the members of that village, every audience member sees themselves on stage in a chorus line. You don't have to be a dancer to have, you know, lived a life. And the show, as much as it is about dancers, it's about their lives, right? Right. It's about growing up. It's about trying to achieve something, to realize a dream, to get a job. I mean, anyone at its its most essential an audition is a job interview, you know? And everybody's had a job interview at some point in their life. Um, We're all on that line. And that was the insight that, that, that Michael Bennett brought to the piece, and it's why it won the Pulitzer Prize for drama in 1976. These shows share sort of a common thread, and that, right. and that is the human experience. And that is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like with Greece or with Man of La Mancha or with Annie. We all can relate to somebody who wants to be positive or, or be a dreamer or 
face adversity or just get a job or try to get navigate the difficult waters of puberty in high school. Um, yeah. But I think it's summed up best in a quote that was in the playbill, which was, mm. this show is dedicated to anyone who has ever danced in a chorus or marched in step anywhere. God, I'm a dancer. A dancer dances. Give me somebody to dance with. Give me a place to fit in. Help me return to the world of the living by showing me how to begin. There it is. Yeah. Just phenomenal. I mean, I I was obsessed with the chorus line growing up. Again, because, you know, it spoke to I mean, literally, I was going through my adolescence as I was listening to, you know, Goodbye 12, Goodbye 13, Hello Love, right? Um, you know, and there's something that is just so um, entrancing about about this show. It's so simple and yet so complex and so brilliant um, and so groundbreaking. Uh, when it became the longest-running Broadway show um, in 1983, September 29th, 1983, uh, Michael Bennett put together um, a gala performance that welcomed back all of the alumni from the Broadway production, and I think even from the touring productions as well. There were 332 performers um, in on stage and in the auditorium for the finale of one. And it's, you know, I mean, it's 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 a sign of the times that we don't see those kinds of elegantly, extravagantly constructed evenings in the theater anymore. Um, but A, the man knew how to put on a show, and B, it was such an incredible moment in Broadway history that this little show from, you know, the public theater downtown had made the leap, had come to Broadway, and was a tourist attraction, right? Broadway hadn't had a show in a while that was a tourist attraction, that people came to New York to see a chorus line. Um, and in fact, they gave out uh, bumper stickers and postcards at the box office that, um, that's, that said, I just saw a chorus line on Broadway. Um, it was such a part of the culture, like, you know, like all these shows that we've talked about um, are. Um, and it went on to run from 1983, you know, another seven years, which again, was just so incredible. And it did that without stunt casting. Right, shows that run a long time now very often, um, you know, they'll cycle in some stars to generate um, interest. At the heart of the show was always a focus on dancers in a chorus who were somewhat anonymous to the average theater goer, and that's you know kind of the whole point. It's no mistake that the finale is titled "One," right? Because <laughs> you've just spent. Uh, 90 minutes or two hours getting to know these individual 17 people and then you can't distinguish them from one another in the finale when they're all wearing those costumes. I mean, it's it's incredibly powerful as an idea. Um, but the show was cast for who was the best person to play the role. They didn't bring in some movie star to play Cassie when Donna McKechnie left. They brought in Anne Reinking, you know, like one of the hottest dancers on Broadway who was not a household name, who wasn't there to sell tickets to tourists, but because she was the best person to play Cassie. And that continued, whether it was Pam Sousa or Wanda Reichert, uh, Vicki Frederick, Cheryl Clark, uh, Lori Gamachi, 
all of these women who played this role or anyone who was in the show were just extraordinary dancers. And we don't really see, you know, shows like that anymore that, that run purely on, you know, um, not having a star of any caliber, right. Uh, Of any, you know, marquee caliber, um, in them. Um, and it's a testament to Joe Papp as well that he kept the show running even after Michael Bennett, you know, passed away in 1987. And the same can um, be said of the revivals, right? They've never done a revival yes. that's built on a star. Anchored around, uh, yeah. Same thing mm-hmm. with the film, which was a disaster of a film and is, yeah. is hard to watch. Cool. Again, yes, they yeah. cast Michael Douglas, right, as Zach. And, you know, so that's mm-hmm. star casting. And But Zach yeah. isn't one of the dancers, right? So there's, right. An argument to be, there's an argument to be made that that in a way works or makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely yeah. right. I don't think the show would work if you were to design it around um, Michelle yeah. Williams or you know right. one of those types of. Th- it just wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't sing the way that it's yeah. the way that it, it sings. wouldn't be a chorus line. You know, I mean, and there's a very famous story. Um, Michael Bennett um, was hired to do the film version of a chorus line, and he has he put together his proposal and he said to the studio okay, if we're going to make a movie out of this, the movie needs to be about making the movie of a chorus line, right? Because otherwise you're not going to achieve the same effect, right? It, it can't be just the musical on a film because that wouldn't work at all. And they disagreed with him and he left a note on his office out in Hollywood that said, gone fishing. Right. And basically said, fuck you, and walked away from the project. And then Richard Attenborough came in and made that monstrosity. But Michael Bennett's idea was resurrected in the 2008 documentary, Every Little Step, which does precisely what he thought needed to be done for the film and tells, you know, as a documentary about casting the revival of A Chorus Line and is itself its own version of a chorus line. And I think that documentary is superb. It's one of the best documentaries about um, acting and dancing and Broadway that I think exists um, and is really worth watching if you if you haven't seen it. I just rewatched it about a week ago. And, and not even and, related to this. Like I, di- I didn't even, until yeah. we started talking about it, I didn't even make the connection that we've been prepping for this yeah. show and whatnot. I just watched it because like you, I it's think so it's, good. I think it's, yeah. you know, I think there are three or four really perfect um, documentaries about the theater and it's, it's one of them. And, and it's also yeah. like, even if you don't know the story of a course line, and again, this is what we're talking about. This is why the story works so well. You get so invested in an hour and a half of, of all these different dancers and some of them, you know, since we're fans of the theater, we know who a lot of them are, but, sure, but yeah. even if you didn't, you could watch this documentary and like a chorus line by the end yeah. you're devastated that so-and-so didn't get the thing and you yep. you love that so-and-so got the job and you it's just it's this universal you know thing that we all have and and again it's yeah. truth it's yep yep it's well the, sh- the show was an unprecedented box office and critical hit one best musical in 1976 along with uh, eight other tony awards uh, it grossed 146 million dollars unbelievable uh, including 50 million dollars of profits which is insane 6.5 million people saw a chorus line on broadway in that original production more than any other show up to that point of course because it ran longer um, and because of the producing deal uh, 75% of the profits went to joe papp's new york shakespeare festival which is the public theater and has allowed the public theater to you know sustain and grow and be the public theater that we know it is today and then of course we already mentioned this the the broader ramifications for a chorus line for broadway as an ecosystem you know it saved 
the Schubert's from having to sell some of their theaters or turn them into movie theaters or sell them to developers to build condos and regenerated tourist interest so that by the 80s, which we'll talk about later, you had these huge shows that were driven by tourist traffic. Um, so this really sort of peppered the way for, for all that to happen. And I think you just have to take it a step further because it wasn't just Broadway that A Chorus Line saved. In essence, it was New York City. Right, yes, because yes. the seventies, the the late sixties and the early seventies to the mid seventies through to the eighties were a really tough time for for New York City. Yeah. Um, and and a chorus line, uh, not only did it save Broadway, but it did save New York. It brought tourism back. It made New York glamorous. It really and that and also in conjunction with the whole I Love New York campaign that was born around yeah. the same time as A Chorus Line. Mm-hmm. And A Chorus Line was in one of the original commercials singing I Love New York mm-hmm. in, that, in their finale costumes, in that kick line. It, it, the, the, they're married in, in a lot of ways and they're, they're entwined. And I think that um, it, it's significant to point out that, um, that it, it really saved Broadway and New York City. It might be, if I may be so bold, be bold, the greatest hit of all the hits that we're going to talk about, just in terms of the social impact and, as you just described, the the broader economic impact that the show had. I mean, I, I can't think of any other show. You know, you can compare the numbers, of course, and inflation and all that, and, you know, tastes have changed and all that jazz. But all that jazz, it's competition that year. Exactly. Uh, uh, two blocks north. It's hard to imagine a, a, a bigger hit than a chorus line. I agree with that. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, like I said earlier about um, Fiddler being the great musical, I would say there's an argument to be made that chorus line is a, a, a tiny fraction below that, if not almost yeah. sharing the same line, the same right? Line. And I think yeah, you could make yeah. an argument that it's, it's actually, you know, they're parallel or they're one is above the other. Um, but it yeah. is one of the great musicals uh, without question. Yeah. And I think you're right. There isn't, you can argue that there have been other musicals that have drawn tourism and that have yeah, generated more money. Right. And have generated, you know, restaurants have been built. We'll talk about, we'll talk about <laughs> that musical a little, little bit later, you know, to support its, its popularity, but nothing quite, did what a chorus line did. And, and not only for New York City, but for one of the great theater institutions ever, the public theater. All of these things, mm-hmm. I think they just, they wouldn't be what they are without Michael Bennett and without a chorus line. And there's really nothing quite like that, is I think what we're saying. So to now to tell a completely different story, our fifth category consists of two reviews. The first one being O Calcutta, 
which lived on Broadway at the same time as A Chorus Line and ran roughly as long for 5,959 performances from 1976 to 1989. It's 12 years and 11 months the show ran. And it was itself a revival of the first production that had been done in 1969, which ran a long time. The original production ran uh, 1,300 performances. It's the 74th longest-running Broadway show. But Oh, Calcutta is the eighth longest-running Broadway show, a title it retains to this day. It's Broadway's longest-running review, the first revival to match its original for more than 1,000 performances. And I think today it is largely forgotten, or at least certainly by folks of my age. I'm 33, you know, because it's before our time and something that is just somewhat of an oddity. I have to say, this is not a show I'm particularly familiar with. I think the artwork is probably its most famous thing that people remember. There was a billboard in Times Square for quite a long time that was a a naked woman with a looking backwards at you with a towel wrapped around her backside that said, oh, Calcutta. And I think that that lives large in people's memory. Certainly it does in mine. But I was not familiar with this show at all. So... So I took a listen. <gasps> have you listened to it? And? No, I never have. So there, it's hard to find. Again, I've mentioned yeah. that I have this magical iPod with um, lots of hard to find and rare recordings, yeah. and it's on there. There's, there's, there's a there was it was recorded. There was a London the London production uh, was recorded, and then there was another recording done. It's a tough listen. It's really of the time. It's really like yeah. 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Lots of organ, lots of synthesized, you know, lots <laughs> of waka waka guitar, you know, but like, but not in a good way, not in like the Starsky and Hutch way, kind of in the like, you know, the creepy bachelor pad way, you know, where the beds come out of the wall. Oh, no. Yeah, it's really, really. To quote Rob Russo in uh, two episodes ago, where you said about Via Galactica, it's very <laughs> spacey. Um, very spacey. Yeah. yeah. Well, this was, you know, this was an adult sex comedy review, right? So that waka waka totally makes sense to well, me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we we have to the the title song "O Calcutta." I think we just have to play yeah. a little clip of right now, just so you get a flavor yeah. of what I'm talking about. Well, that delivered. Well, <laughs> delivered. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, I think I need a towel to clean up the mess yeah, well, on the couch. A woman in Times Square. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, it, it was conceived and partially written by uh, British critic Kenneth Tynan. Okay, right um, there. And- that's bonkers. Yeah. Right? Isn't that insane? Uh, and it included, you know, different sketches and songs by different authors. So it's sort of a hodgepodge of different people, including Samuel Beckett, Sam Shepard, John Lennon, Edna O'Brien. I mean, very strange. And what we haven't talked about, we've alluded to it, um, is, you know, the show is most memorable for having 
complete full frontal nudity right. and like extended scenes of total nudity. My mom tells the story of you know, her sister came to visit from North Carolina and they got front row tickets for Oh Calcutta. They had no idea what it was about. And these poor Southern girls uh, were quite shocked to see uh, a full frontal nudity on Broadway. It didn't run afoul of any like laws around public indecency or, or obscenity because there was no like simulated sex or anything like that. It was just there were just naked people on stage, much like at the end of Hair. But that was, you know, sort of artistically done very fast and in the dark, right? I would <laughs> venture a guess that if we were to see O Calcutta today in its original form, yeah. we would yeah. laugh at how silly it all oh, seemed, right? I'm sure. Well, first of all, I mean, the title itself Oh, is I love this. <laughs> yes. So I, I didn't know this. I always wondered, why was this show called O Calcutta? And in my research, I discovered... Um, that the title is taken from the title of a painting by a uh, French painter Clovis Truel. Truel? You're the one who speaks French, that. not... I did take French, yeah. Um, and <laughs> O Calcutta is a corruption of the French phrase O Calcutta, which means, literally translates to, oh, what a lovely ass you have. I love that. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's so 60s. Painting so early 70s. Clovis Truel um, was a woman's ass uh, with tattoos on her butt cheeks. And that painting was the official logo of the show. It was on the playbill. It's the poster Uh, that I referenced. It's the billboard I referenced in Times Square. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, You know, so that just gives you all you need to know about Calcutta. Shall we move on to our second? Well, no, I just, I do want to say this one thing because I think it's so crazy. Originally, Kenneth Tynan wanted Harold Pinter to direct Oh my I can't think of a worse idea. Like yeah. <laughs> I, anyway, yes, it's it's um it's an interesting show. I I will say that Clive Barnes in his review at the New York Times, he said, "The humor is so doggedly sophomoric and the failure here is almost exclusively a failure of the writers and the producers." <laughs> and yet, it ran for 12 years in its revival at the Edison Theater. At the Edison a Theater, theater I've you know worked well. in. A theater I know That's well. Right. Um, which I believe was, if not right after this, um, converted back into an event space, right? Or, or at least no longer a Broadway theater. It was made an off-Broadway theater. When I worked in it, it was an off-Broadway theater. And that was 99, 2000. It's a tiny theater. We, in fact, our show converted it into a, like a nightclub, right? It's, which is what yeah. it really looked like. And then Tony and Tina's wedding moved in after us. And then I believe it's now part of the restaurant Bond 45. We have to talk about the other big review, which is Smokey Joe's Cafe. which ran on Broadway from 1995 to 2000 for over 2000 performances. And, you know, was just a a musical review of songs by uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, classic rock and roll, rhythm and blues songs from the 50s and 60s, and was a runaway success, right? I mean, this show, 
arrived in Broadway in 1995, a season with one other Tony-nominated musical, Sunset Boulevard, uh, at a time, again, a, another time where there was some like, oh, what's happening to the American musical? There isn't really a lot. And you know, one of the very sad and tragic reasons for that is the fact that we lost so many artists and writers uh, to AIDS in the 1980s. And the musicals that they were developing or had in mind or would have written, no doubt, would have been arriving on Broadway in the mid-90s. Was very revival heavy for musicals in that period. Very revival fact, heavy. That yes. year alone yeah. was How to Succeed in Business and Showboat, which mm-hmm. were two spectacular yeah. revivals. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But Smokey Joe's Cafe um, ran, you know, for a long time. They had a, a, a roster of, of famous musicians who came in from Leslie Gore to Gladys Knight, Tony Orlando, Lou Rawls. I remember the ads when Lou Rawls came yeah, into Smokey deal. Joe's Cafe. Yeah, uh, Rick Springfield. Um, you know, and it was a big hit. It didn't win any awards, um, any Tony awards. But it was nominated. The four of the six performers were nominated. Yeah, I believe it. And, you know, it is today Broadway's longest running original music review. Uh, it's the 35th longest running show in Broadway history. And it did receive a revival off Broadway in 2018. Um, that it was my first time seeing it. I had listened to the original cast album, you know, many times growing up. I loved it. I thought it was, you know, such great music. Um, but I saw that 2018 revival and I, for the first time, truly understood why Smokey Joe's Cafe was such a hit. You say the neon lights are bright on Broadway, on Broadway. You say there's always magic in the air, on Broadway. But when you're walking down the street and you ain't had Because it's not just the music, it's it's the way the evening is put together and the opportunity that it provides for individual performers to really blow the roof off. And um, it's it's a perfect music review. I mean, I it, it I completely understand why it was such a, a hit. And also, I think that catalog, the Lieber and yes. Stoller catalog, is um, it's it's epic. And I think it's also a catalog of song after song after song that you hear and think, oh my God, they wrote that too? They wrote that? They wrote that? And these songs, there's such a huge variety in terms of style and all of that, that it it lends itself to a very entertaining evening in the theater, even if you just stack the songs up like they did. I love this. Ben Brantley in his review said, Too often, though, the performers are simply singing into space without any ostensible reason for being there. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that 
which is bitchy, but accurate. And then also, <laughs> I think, like I said just before that, the reason the show was so successful is that it was just, right. it was just about the music and it was just right. about just joy and everyone mm-hmm. Needs a little bit of that, and and 100%. and also, I think the deficit of of new musicals at that in that period um, really right. helped it become that there wasn't a lot for for is particularly for tourists, which is a big yeah. which is the big makeup of market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, you know, <laughs> I've mentioned this now before, but you give Jerry Zachs a show and he's going to deliver a great oh show. My. He directed this and Joey McNeely did the, the staging, you know, and I, I have to imagine it was just terrific. Joshua Bergast did the revival um, directed and choreographed it in 2018. And it was so entertaining. It was so thrilling. It was, it was exactly what it needed to be, which I think is, you know, what made uh, this review so successful. I agree with that. I can wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging on the line. Starch and iron two dozen shirts before you can count from one to nine. I can scoop up a great big dipper full of lard from the drippings can. Throw and skillet, go out and do a shopping and be back before it melts in the pan. Cause I'm a All right, so moving on to our sixth category. This is another one of those that's anchored solely by one show. And that show... With good reason. Yes, yes. That show is David Merrick's song and dance extravaganza, 42nd Street. Oh, how I love this show. Oh my gosh, who doesn't love this show? If you don't love this show, what are you doing in the musical theater? Um... 42nd Street, of course, uh, opened on Broadway in 1980 uh, and ran a stunning eight years and five months, 3,486 performances. Um, and, you know, obviously is, is the, the stage version of the 1933 uh, Hollywood film, uh, which itself was based on a novel from 1932. Uh, just a classic backstage musical, um, sort of like the paradigm of the backstage musical, right? I mean, it's got to be the most famous uh, uh, of all of them. I think people who don't know the show and don't know the film know what it references. Right, right, exactly. And, and in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, you had not seen the film until you met me, right? Didn't That's right. I had never seen it. No, I, I, I saw the revival of the show and I've seen it in London and I've, you know, I've seen a high school production of it, but I had never seen the film. And it was quite fascinating to see after, you know, knowing the musical as well as I do. And it's not very good. <laughs> No, it's not. I mean, I think it's you have to look at it through the lens of when it was made and of course, of course, of course, the confines of the time. But right. um no, but it's not a great film. It takes no. a really, really long time to get to the good stuff. The musical numbers are Busby Berkeley, which would figure heavily into mm-hmm. the 2000 revival, but really the the musical that we're talking about, the the original production is really its own thing. Yes, yes. Well, that's, you know, the the brilliance of David Merrick and Gower Champion, um, and then of course book writers Michael Stewart and Mark Bramble, um, in in taking this this film and this idea more even more so than the than the specifics of the film, but the idea and what it represents, and creating a a quote unquote brand new musical in 1980 that itself is 
like a 1930s musical, or at least an idealized version of what a, a 1930s musical would be, because musicals weren't as sophisticated uh, in 19, you know, in the 1930s as they are now, or certainly by 1980. Um, and it's also an early example of what we would call today a jukebox musical, right? Because there are very few musical numbers in the film itself, the 1933 film. Um, and what they did is they, they expanded beyond the film to the Harry Warren and Al Dubin uh, songbook and incorporated songs that they had written for other films of the time, like Gold Diggers of 1933 and Dames and Go Into Your Dance, you know, all these classic musical uh, films of the 1930s. Um, they took all the best songs from them, put them together into one score that is just terrific. And song after song, if you didn't know them before, they are now in your mind, you know, classic 1930s songs, right? And I will say that even when you hear the score for the first time, these songs do that thing that a great song can do, which is feel like you know the song, even mm-hmm. though it's your first time hearing it. I mean, I think probably a lot of people would have known uh, Lullaby of Broadway before seeing 42nd Street originally, but that's about it. Everything yeah. else, those songs were, and they, they just, they're so wonderful. Yeah. And, and in 1980, it was somewhat of a risk. I mean, it's always a risk to create a new musical, but um, specifically doing sort of the reverse, which is to say taking a movie musical and making it into a stage musical. Traditionally, it goes the opposite way, right? You have a, a musical on Broadway or whatever that is then made into a film. Um, and this was attempting to do the reverse, which had been done with Gigi in the 1970s and was a huge flop. Um, so, you know, investors or, you know, theater types would have been right to be skeptical that you could take, you know, 42nd Street and turn it into a stage musical. And yet um, they did. And it's just one of those examples of a glorious combination of uh, book writers and Gower Champion as a director or choreographer lending his touch as an auteur of the piece um, to create one of the greatest Broadway musicals ever, uh, and certainly one of the greatest hits of the 1980s. We're in the money. this one was a little hard for me. Yeah. So, you know, I love this show. As yeah. you know, mm-hmm. Rob, I think it's a perfect show. Yeah. Um, not unlike Annie in the 70s, which was mm-hmm. a huge moment for me. Annie and A Chorus Line in the 70s was a huge moment for me. 42nd Street defined, to a certain extent, my early experience of the 80s. I was obsessed yeah. with this show. I oh, saw yeah. the show multiple, multiple times. That cast and, album is superb. Oh, I lived so hard in that cast album. Yeah. I, I, like uh, almost harder than, than anything it ever. Slaps. It slaps. It slaps. Yeah. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, that's a very okay. good thing. <laughs> um, but what I will say is that um, it, it, and it, it has so many thrilling moments to the degree that now we're at the moment I referenced earlier, mm. I think it has one of the great openings in musical theater history. Oh, yeah. Without question, the overture 
comes to a finish and it goes into a piano and the curtain lifts just a little bit and you see all these tap dancing feet. Now, the story has always been that that was a mistake, right? That they were working on the show and the curtain wouldn't raise all the way. Gower saw it and said, leave it. I love it. Now, that's a great story. I don't know if it's necessarily true because I don't know if you remember this, but that same device is used in Hello, Dolly many, many, many years Mm. earlier, right? Yeah. Dolly does her monologue before the parade passes by, right. the oak leaf, yada, yada. And then the music starts to swell and the curtain goes up very slowly. It doesn't right. stop necessarily, but it's a similar thing. So I right. have to believe that that was just David <laughs> yeah. Merrick doing his thing. But yeah. um, Well, and Gower Champion, because he also directed and choreographed Teledon. Right, right, but I mean, in terms of the story of oh, like it sure. was a technical mm-hmm. glitch and that's yeah. how they got that br- brilliant moment. Yeah. Um, but it is, I think, one of the great openings ever and a thrilling, thrilling moment in musical theater. I will never, ever forget seeing the 2001 revival um, and experiencing that moment for the first time. And not only the tease of the feet, but then once it, the curtain goes up and you have what felt like 100 people on stage, and it was probably as many as 40 or 50. I mean, it's a, this is a show that usually has a big cast. Um, tap dancing at the same time doing the same routine. There is nothing like it on earth. And I don't know why there isn't more tap on Broadway. Every season I'm waiting for a tap musical. Where are they? There's never enough. And that opening number is the perfect example of why it is so goddamn effective. I mean, it's so thrilling. I'll never forget it. I was, what, I was 14 years old and my jaw dropped. I mean, it it was just thrilling. I will say I have a minor quibble with um, with the way they did it in the the revival. Yeah, because originally it's done with just a piano, mm-hmm. and the piano plays throughout that moment. It's called the audition, and it's 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 the piano is playing, and then v- at the very end, as the tapping swells and the audition is almost over, is when the full orchestra comes in. Yeah, and it's thrilling. Now, the 2000 revival didn't do it that way. They had Mm. the full orchestra come right in.
So there's never that like big swell yeah, that, that swell yeah. where you get goosebumps. But yeah. that's a minor quibble. And I also understand <laughs> that, that that revival, which which also became the London revival of a few years ago. Yeah. You know, that was a go go big or go home oh, version yeah. of this. And it, oh, that yeah. works too. It's effective in a different way. Yeah, um, but yeah. as a purist, I just have right. to point that little <laughs> yeah, thing out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's amazing how um, you know Forty Second Street, following on the foothills of you know so many of the big musicals of the late seventies, um, sort of represented a resurgence of Broadway. And then you know, in two thousand and one, um, it was on Broadway when uh, September eleventh happened, and New York was once again devastated. This time, obviously, in a very different way. Um, you know, from an external force. Um, and I have to imagine part of the success of that revival is that it was running at a moment when audiences needed that kind of thrilling, uplifting entertainment. And, um, you know, it was I'll, the, the, the image of the dancers of that show, you know, tapping down 42nd Street, um, you know, after 9-11 is something I will never forget. And, it's a real example of, of a musical meeting a moment. I mean, that revival ran 1,500 performances, it, which makes it the 60th longest running show in Broadway history. The original production was the 15th longest running Broadway show, or at least by today's standards. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a mistake that it has always been just embraced and loved by audiences, not only because it's a backstage musical and just like Hollywood likes to make movies about Hollywood, Broadway likes to make musicals about Broadway, but also because of the content. You know, we talked about this with Annie, right? I mean, this 42nd Street takes place during the Great Depression and it's an element of escapism to it and um, of hope embodied in the characters. And the idea of, you know, Peggy Sawyer being plucked from the chorus and made a star, right? I right, mean, taking the job away from the big, mean, diva right. leading I mean, lady who's what's horrible more, and... Right. Yeah, what's more iconic than that? And what's more satisfying as an audience member to see, you know, the underdog win? You know? We love an underdog. I mean, there's yeah. a theme running Total through theme. so yeah. many of these shows. It also marked the end of an era. You know, uh, 42nd Street arrived on Broadway in 1980, won the Best Musical Tony Award 1981. Um, and it was produced by a single producer, David Merrick. Next time you're at the theater, when we're allowed back at the theater, look above the title, and there are 60 names of corporations and partnerships and all these people that it takes to put on a show. In 1980, David Merrick was the sole producer of, of um, 42nd Street. It was his last big hit. Um, and Gower Champion, who obviously was a titan of the musical theater, uh, very famously passed away on opening night. Um, and once again, David Merrick being both completely evil, um, but really knowing how to capitalize on a moment, kept it as, as a secret to the entire cast and revealed upon uh, the curtain, you know, uh, that uh, that Gower had in fact passed away earlier that day. And, you know, as legend says, there were just screams from the audience and people were weeping and, you know. Uh, it's one of those moments like Bob Fosse passing away on the opening night of Sweet Charity on tour uh, in D.C., um, you know, just one of those moments that um, is just so dramatic and uh, just becomes, you know, part of the the lore of a show. Um, but you know, it marked the end of of an, a, an, another person, you know, major uh, auteur in the theater's career and imprint. And as we're going to see as we talk about future shows, um, you know, for a long time, 
there weren't really big successful American musicals on Broadway. And 42nd Street was kind of the last of them for a long time. I agree with that. I, 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 I also think there is footage that exists of that moment during oh, the really? call. Oh, I believe I, yeah. I, I know that I, you know, we've all, I, we've all seen the photos, right? There are photos yeah. and I can put them online if you haven't seen them, but the, those photos exist. Yeah. I believe I've seen video, um, you know, from, a news crew or somebody that was filming and it's bad audio, but you can, you can clearly hear the scream. I'm pretty sure I'm not making that up. Um, but I will say I, I, Merrick was a monster. There's no question about that. (laughs) And again, I, I highly encourage you to read the abominable showman. It's a terrific book, but I have two feelings of, about that. I understand why as a producer, you would not want to tell your cast before oh, they do their oh, opening night. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That Gower Champion is, yeah, that, I understand that. Now, using it to your advantage and creating this big, there's, and, and there's, there's, there's yeah. absolutely a correlation you can make to that moment, that shocking thing, helping just catapult this phenomenal show even further into yeah. the yeah. stratosphere. I, I, I don't disagree with that. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, that's showbiz. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as I, you know, sort of alluded to a minute ago, um, not only did the show, you know, sort of mark this, this transition um, in Broadway history, but it also like literally physically did as well, right? So it opened at the Winter Garden Theater in 1980 and then uh, left the Winter Garden Theater uh, to make room for Cats, right? And Here we go and buckle up, the, people, and move to the Majestic Theater, right? And then it was at the Majestic Theater until it had to leave to make way for Phantom of the Opera, and then it finally closed at the St. James Theater. So it's you know one of the rare examples of a show, well, you know, certainly not too rare because we've mentioned a couple of them that jumped from theater to theater to theater. And after Forty Second Street, you rarely saw that again. Um, but also, not only it wasn't just moving willy nilly; it was moving for these major British imports. Um, and if that doesn't symbolize the power shift of Broadway in the 1980s, uh, I can't help you. Frank Rich has made this point before, um, and I 100% agree with him. And I have to say, again, about the brilliance of this show, I think one of the things that's so deceptive, the big moment in the second act, the 42nd Street number, um, and it, it's unfortunate in in the latter revivals that it's not done with Gower's original choreography because um, I think they make a big mistake in not doing that. One of the things about that number that's so brilliant is how dark it is and how it's really a dark moment in a pretty puffy show, right? In a show that's pretty much about costume changes and pretty girls and all of that stuff. Here you have this moment. Dames, where, Jamie, dames. Dames, absolutely. <laughs> um, you have this, this, this beautiful dance piece where basically at the core of it, it's about how life moves on and just how cold and cruel and and brutal um, life can be. And there's there's a moment where the Peggy Sawyer character meets an army fella and they start dancing and he gets shot and killed um, because the police are after a cat burglar who's sort of woven through this this thing. And they don't do it that way anymore. Now they shoot the cat burglar. And there's this brilliant moment where... um, where the company comes to almost to a halt and there's a tap 
moment between Peggy Sawyer and this army fella, and it's just a saxophone and the music gets very quiet. And then he's, and they have this, it's very sensual. gets shot he gets dragged off stage she has this very interesting moment where she doesn't know what to do and she's heartbroken and then she the number ends with her joining everybody dancing again and it's heartbreaking and i I just have to point that out because I, i again like the opening number i think it's so brilliant and so deceptive and so powerful and it's wrapped up in this cotton candy and you forget that that moment happens in the show. And I think that moment is the core of what 42nd Street is really about. Well, it was replaced with a wall of stairs, which are also thrilling in their own way. Right. Well, if I were ever to revive 42nd Street and somebody gave me that power, I think there's a world where you can do both. both. I I actually, I spent a lot of time last night looking at this number, both the original um, Broadway version, the original UK cast, and then the revival cast. and sort of analyzing them. And I think, I think it could live in both worlds. I mean, that yeah. staircase is magnificent. Oh, that's, it's that's, pretty cool. I mean, yeah. it's pretty thrilling. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Uh, amazing. Well, 42nd Street, uh, hard to think of a better musical. I don't know if there are better musicals, but there are certainly a lot more hits to come. Yes, yes. Uh, so we've we've kind of uh, left off on a real cliffhanger, a real moment of transition for uh, for Broadway history with Forty Second Street. So we'll pick up next time uh, in the eighties, the real eighties, like deep eighties. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Forty Second Street is technically well, in the eighties, nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, that's a funny thing about decades, right? The early eighties are really more like the late seventies, right? And so exactly, on and so forth. Exactly. But exactly. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess we're gonna. I guess we're gonna get a little visit from uh, our friends across the pond. Yeah, more than a little visit. Uh, some might say <laughs> an invasion. Well, you're gonna have to tune in next week because there are a lot more shows. There's an invasion. It gets a little crazy. They're side by side. They're glorified. Where the underworld can meet 
That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to tune in Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.